if you're like me, uh, a lot of you are going to find out that uh, you hadn't really planned well for this type of adversity. And when that happens, you're going to get a lot of lessons. And some of them are going to be super expensive emotionally, uh, financially, uh, in your relationships. You're listening to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of real estate investing with your host, Marcus E. Maloney. Marcus is a real estate investor best known for being the equity king. He's been awarded that moniker because he and his team find amazing real estate deals. He will be talking with investors who have done some transformational things in the real estate industry. They'll discuss their process, their strategies, and how their investments transform their lives and the communities they invest in. We welcome you to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to We Love Equity Real Estate listeners. On today, I have a very, very special guest, and especially for times like these where we are learning about some of the changes and ebbs and flows in the economy. Today, I have Russell Gray from the Real Estate Guys radio show, who is the longest real estate podcast out there in this space. Uh, Russell is the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show, an avid student of the economics with a diverse background of business, investing, mortgage, and financial services. Russ brings unique and practical insights to help entrepreneurs, um, investors grow and protect their wealth, income, through real estate and real estate investing. Russell, welcome to the show, man. I know that intro didn't do you any justice. Um, give us a little bit of background about you and who you are, and uh, we'll get started and jump right into these questions. Okay, well, Marcus, first of all, thanks for having me, and congratulations for uh, joining the space of uh, new media uh, podcasters out there, new media, I guess it's video too. So you're doing video. So it's really not podcasting, yes. but it's new media. Uh, but I think that this is what needs to happen, right? People teaching people, Main Street, investing in Main Street. Um, we may not be the oldest people in the space, but we're close. We started the radio show. Robert started the radio show in 1997. I joined his co-host in uh, 2004. Robert and I started working together a couple of years before that. Uh, in the education business, we uh, had a mortgage company at the time, and he was in real estate brokerage. And so we did some kind of joint uh, uh, venture alliance, uh, created an a, a educational company, and we started doing real estate investing education. And of course, that generated a lot of business for both of our uh, businesses. Along the way, we started a development company uh, domestically. Then we moved offshore. After 2008, a lot of things went wrong for us. Uh, what happens, I think everybody will find out uh, going through what we're going through now in 2020, that when you have flaws in your business model, when you have flaws in your portfolio, when you have flaws in your thinking, your philosophy, mm -hmm. when you get put under this kind of pressure, those flaws are exposed. And so, you know, if you're out there listening and you're feeling the pressure already or when it comes, because it will, hopefully the house you've built and the way you think will all stand up. Okay. But if you're like me, a lot of you are going to find out that uh, you hadn't really planned well for this type of adversity. And when that happens, you're going to get a lot of lessons. And some of them are going to be super expensive emotionally, uh, financially, uh, in your relationships. Uh, but that's okay because that's all part of the process, right? I mean, the whole, the whole thing, we all go off because we think we're going to make a bunch of money and have a bunch of success yep. and, 
you know, uh, my mentor in sales, Tom Hopkins, calls in the four levels of competence. He calls that level one, right? You go out and you're, you're unconsciously incompetent. I mean, you, you're, you're bad and you don't even know it. But you find out by, by doing and failing. And then you get to level two, which is where you become consciously incompetent. You're like, dang, I'm, I'm really not very good at this. My portfolio is not uh -huh. very well structured. My business doesn't really run very well. My relationships aren't as solid as I thought they were. If you don't quit there, which is where most people quit, then you move on <clears throat> as you continue to develop yourself to level three. And level three is where you're consciously competent, where you need to really concentrate and focus and think and plan and discipline yourself. And it's kind of hard work, but at least you're able to get the job done. And if you persist at that, practicing good habits, good thoughts, uh, and eventually you will get to what the fourth level, which is mastery, which is unconscious competence. You're great and you don't even have to think about it. Very few people have the tenacity uh, and the toughness to make it through all four levels. But I'm here to tell you, this is a great learning opportunity, what we're going through in 2020 and probably in the next few years ahead. And so if you approach it with that mindset, I think it helps. So I learned all that in 2008 and I paid a big, 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 big price for it. But thankfully, I think I'm a better businessman today. I'm a better investor today. And my portfolio is much, much better structured. Whereas 2008 caught me completely flat-footed mm -hmm. and I lost millions. Uh, 2020 has caught me very prepared. I, I would like to be more prepared. I wish it was a little bit later in coming. Uh, I've had some personal adversity in my life, which there's, you know, there's not a lot you can do when your, your wife gets terminally ill. But, um, but that's all behind me now. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, if you will, about facing the adversity that's in front of us. And I'm hoping to help other people get through it well. So uh, that's not exactly a bio, but it's kind of a little bit of a history about how I think, how I came to think, how I think, and uh, why I'm excited about where we're at right now in the cycle. Well, I, I definitely want to thank you uh, here for being on the show, Russell. So let me ask you, you, you talked about 2008. What exactly all did you go through in 2008 for those who don't know? And how did you structure your portfolio going forward from what you learned from your down, downside in 2008? Yeah, well, uh, a couple things. The, the biggest mistake I made is that, uh, and I'm going to throw Robert under the bus too, because the two of us uh, were, were the smartest guys in the rooms we were in. So we would create rooms where we were the gurus and we were the smartest guys in the room, which meant that the room really wasn't all that smart, but we no. didn't know that. <laughs> and so in 2008, we found out that uh, we needed to resign from being the smartest guys in the room and, and surround ourselves with smarter people. So the first thing we did was use the show and our annual summit, which is uh, we'd done on a cruise ship for 17 years. This last year, we had to do it on a computer screen. Yep. Next year, we're going to do it uh, at, at our resort property in Belize. But um, we, we found out, we, we used it to get into relationships with lots of really smart people. And that's where we started hanging around people like uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Chris Martinson, uh, Peter Schiff, um, just Brian London, uh, people outside the real estate space, people who looked at the macro picture, uh, and of course, all kinds of top-notch real estate investors who are much better in their niches than we are, guys like Brad Sumrock in apartments or Gene Garino in residential assisted living. And, and then we, we really took a turn offshore. By accident, we had been doing some business offshore. And when the crap hit the fan in 2008, the only stuff that really survived 
without a lot of fight was the stuff that was offshore because it was outside the reach of a lot of the creditors and predators. So that was a big lesson. So uh, in terms of the portfolio and the business, the big mistakes that we had made uh, were, we, we didn't do what I've uh, learned is called a SWOT analysis, strengths, okay. weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Had I done that on both my business and my portfolio, I would have become more keenly aware, I'd like to believe, of my uh, universal dependence upon healthy credit markets. I brokered credit. I had huge credit lines that I ran my business on. I had no cash. Okay. I had equity lines of credit. And when I needed to tap liquidity, I would just use those lines to make down payments, to make um, you know, deposits and hold properties. Uh, so we had started syndicating. So we already understood the value of having liquidity through other people's money. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were narrow in our demographic and our demographic was more uh, mom and pop newbie type investors and we were training them. And afterwards we decided that we needed to focus on more sophisticated, more affluent investors that could handle the risk, who had better balance sheets. <clears throat> Okay. And, you know, we're, we're better equipped and better, better well advised. So we changed where we were hanging out and who we were hanging out with. Um, we we uh, decided to keep more liquidity and not just in cash, but also in precious metals, something that I think that anybody who listened to us over the last several years uh, sitting here today in July of 2020 are feeling pretty darn good. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and we started looking at the macro picture. You know, uh, I was in the mortgage business, which was the epicenter of the 2008 financial crisis. But I was at the beach, if you will, enjoying the sunshine with mm -hmm. my back to the water. And I didn't see the tsunami forming on the horizon. And by the time I woke up and turned around, it washed me away. And I would say probably from a portfolio standpoint, and this is probably maybe the most controversial. It, it, Robert Kiyosaki has been saying it for decades now. And I'm not saying I'm a better communicator than Kiyosaki or have a better way of saying it, but I can say that even though I heard him say it many, many, many times, I didn't get it. So I had to find a different way to think about it. And that is the difference between equity and cash flow. Now I'm an equity guy, right? Our book Equity Happens, right? Mm -hmm. I love the name of your show, Equity. Yep. But you know, in, in real estate, equity comes from cash flow. Cash flow is equity because income properties are valued by the income they produce. The more income, the more value. Value being price. The difference between price and loan is equity. equity. You grow equity by increasing income. Anybody that understands uh, value add knows that game. And then the really smart ones use the increased cash flow to tap that equity right away, get it out of the property and either sequester it for safety, which is a good move right now, mm -hmm. or uh, it, it, you know, if it's, it's a bullish time to be moving into more properties, you use it for down payments on additional properties. So there's a lot of different ways to play that game. So uh, anyway, there, you know, the, 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 the concept is cash flow and investing isn't about net worth. If you, if you denominate, I was a multimillionaire on assets minus liabilities equals net worth, but I was a pauper and I didn't know it. And what happened is 2008 revealed it because if you play Kiyosaki's game cash flow, you realize that the mm -hmm. secret is passive income. And passive when your passive income. income exceeds your 
um, expenses, you're out of the rat race. Well, I had a thriving business. I was making six figures a month in my mortgage business, right? So what in the heck did I need my portfolio to contribute cash flow for? So I was all in all equity in my portfolio. I had maybe five to 10% equity spread out over a multi-million dollar portfolio. Wow. And I was negative cash flow, but I paid it out of my business. And my, my theory was that the more top line real estate I controlled, you know, if I own $10 million of real estate, it goes up 5%. That's a, that's a, you know, a $500,000 move, right? So I could increase my net worth faster by being highly leveraged and equity thin. The problem is, is that in a recession, when prices retreat, the, all of the damage is done at the margin. It's like a, it's like a tree, right? If a forest fire comes, the trunk will stand, the roots yep. will stand. But out there, those little sensitive, when you're out there, the margin gets, you get a haircut, right? Yep. And so you get a five or 10% reduction on a portfolio that's only capitalized by 10%. Now you're negative equity. And if you add a recession to that, uh, then you go negative cash flow. And in my case, it completely destroyed my mortgage business. I was zero cash flow, zero cash, yep. no access to credit, and I couldn't sell the property. So I was poor. My poverty was revealed. You know, it's like Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. Well, I was swimming naked and I didn't even know it. So today, if I was to value net worth, the way I would do it is I would take your passive cash flow, annualize it, and then divide it by a hypothetical cap rate, whatever you think, you know, capital okay. should be, call it 5%. So, you know, if I say, okay, well, I've got $50,000 a year in passive income and I think, okay, I'm going to divide that by 5% cap rate or whatever. Then I say, okay, I'm worth a million bucks, right? It has nothing to do mm -hmm. with assets minus liability. It has, it, it, that's a very different way to look at it, but it's a safer way to look at it. Does that so, make sense? Yes, yes. So let me ask you this, Russ. So you were basically in 2008, you were playing the appreciation game. You was like, okay, negative uh, cash flow. I know that these properties will possibly increase. These, these gains will increase over time and that's how you got caught was you were looking at the appreciation play and not worried about the cash flow because you were doing so good in your mortgage business yeah um so how did you structure how do you structure your portfolio now although we went through all of that how for someone that has a portfolio let's just say if they have tons of equity in their portfolio how should they structure it now to make sure they hedge themselves against you know the uh the recession well, I think the first thing, I had a chance to interview Donald Trump before he was president or even candidate Trump. And I asked him, I only got one question because it was a room full of reporters. But, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but the one question that I got a chance to ask him was, you know, Mr. Trump, you've been through some ups and you've been through some downs, you know, art of the deal and art of the comeback. Uh -huh. um, what did you learn in the good times and what did you learn in the bad times? And then my follow-up question is, how would that help you if you decided to become president? Well, he didn't answer the last question because he hadn't announced yet. He didn't want to go there. Uh, but he said, well, I really didn't learn anything in the good times. And that's mm -hmm. true. I didn't learn anything in the good times. I thought I was smart. Yeah, All the good yeah. times did was numb me to, to you know, it, it, the opposite of humility. It made me prideful. Mm -hmm. um, but in the down times, he said, it's always good to have a little cash. So I think the first thing is liquidity, real liquidity. Right. And, uh, and so that's number one. Number two is I think watching what happened in the wake of 2008, you need to be extremely aware of counterparty risk. And that's, that's a risk that most people in the paper asset world completely are ignorant of, don't pay any attention to, and nobody on Wall Street ever talks about it. 
because everything they do is filled with it. So cash in the bank under Dodd-Frank as of January of 2014 is counterparty risk. You're lending your savings to the bank or your float in your business to the bank. Anything over $250,000 not guaranteed by the FDIC. Right. If that bank becomes insolvent, the provisions already exist for them to keep your money because you're an unsecured creditor. Most people don't know that. When you own stocks at your stockbroker, unless you have the stock certificates in your possession, unless you are registered on those stock roles with each individual company as an owner, what you have is an IOU from your broker saying that they owe you the stock and they own the stock. They're holding it for you. If that broker has a problem, yes, there's SIPC insurance, but you're exposed to counterparty risk. A lot of people don't know that. So I, I, I think uh, having liquidity and having liquidity uh, that is insulated from uh, counterparty risk is important. So, you know, cash in the bank, but cash outside the bank. Uh, and I also think cash outside the dollar. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you want to have other currencies, maybe, um, but I certainly think precious metals has a role in an investor's portfolio. And you can actually have a chunk of it. You know, I'm a big fan of converting a piece of your real estate equity into metal. If I would have done that, I would have survived a lot better. I'm also a big fan of converting uh, your float, a chunk of your float. You know, if you look at your operating accounts and you say, oh, okay, I've always got kind of on average a balance of $300,000, always. It's just always a 300000 money in, money out. Yeah, it's all spoken for. It's not really savings, but it's float. Right. Well, you know, if I, if I were to lop a hundred grand of that off and park it in metal, I'm insulated from the counterparty risk. I'm insulated from the dollar. I'm still highly liquid because I can convert it back into dollars anytime I need to. And it puts a little extra pressure on me to pay attention to cash flow because I don't feel so comfortable. Right. Right. You and don't so have that 300,000 just sitting there that you can pull. Yeah. So there's some things you can do, you know, in your portfolio management to just understand what's going on when the Fed is printing trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars with reckless abandon and mainlining it directly into the economy through the Treasury stimulus program, direct deposits, bailout, PPP loans. That money's going to hit the streets. Mm -hmm. And you're already starting to see it. So, you know, it's going to affect your tenants. And so from a portfolio standpoint, it's like, you know, we were buying luxury high rises. You know, we had a Mandarin Oriental in Las Vegas and city center. We had high rises, you know, condos just, I mean, it was great because it was, everybody was rich. These things were being right. bid up. You could make a, you make a hundred grand in a year holding one of those things. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that there's nobody above you to move down when that, when that, tide rolls out rolls in right yeah so we switched we got into very we focused on affordable markets and we we focused on affordable markets that had geographically linked employment so kenny mcelroy uh, kiyosaki's rich dad advisor was focused on energy coming out of 2008 and i go oh, that's interesting why is that and he goes because those jobs can't go to china i mm -hmm. thought that's brilliant that's brilliant so we looked at those towns um and then the other thing is i said well what else is like that distribution, okay. distribution town. So we went into Memphis, we went into Atlanta, uh, out of the Texas towns, we chose Dallas because of both energy, but also diverse economy. And it's a distribution hub. It's yeah. really kind of the central point. Love Even we, we did some stuff in San Antonio, which was the first uh, major city on the NAFTA highway. Stuff would come in mm -hmm. uh, from China uh, through Mexico 
and then work its way up the NAFTA highway and terminate, but it wouldn't terminate in San, uh, in San Antonio. That was just a pit stop along the way. It would terminate in Dallas and that's where it would get distributed. So we felt like there was gonna be lots of working class jobs in Memphis, Atlanta, and Dallas. We felt like Dallas was a triple dip because it was a metro hub with tech right. and finance and uh, entertainment. I mean, they make movies in Dallas, believe it or not, plus energy. So those all turned out to be fantastic markets. But the thing is, in, when times get tough, people in places like Chicago and New York uh, and San Francisco, they move. They go to places yeah. like Phoenix, Las Vegas. So if you're in those mid-markets in tax-friendly, landlord-friendly jurisdictions, business-friendly jurisdictions, in product types and price points where there's lots of people above you, in tough times, people's moving down to survive mm -hmm. or moving to a new area to have the same quality of life or a lower cost of living actually puts upward pressure uh, and from a demand standpoint on the niche you're in. And so that was a big shift in our philosophy. Uh, and then, of course, we, we focused a lot of our, our go-forward effort on cash flow and, in particular, how could we cash flow on other people's money? And so and we did something very niche because we got to a point in our career where life was too short to just do deals for the sake of making money. So we went into resort property development in the Caribbean, right? Okay. So we don't talk about that on the radio because, first of all, 99% of our audience isn't interested in that. Uh -huh. And the second thing is, is we really don't talk about our own stuff on the radio anymore. Uh, we're more interested in talking bigger picture and, and giving people a variety because everybody, you know, is going to do their own thing. So, um, but, but that, that's kind of a long answer to all of the different, well, some of the different things that we learned and adjusted coming out of 2008. Okay. So, so with the economy right now, Russell, we, we all see the impending doom that's, that's coming. How should real estate investors structure themselves to be insulated? I know you said precious metals, you said take, you know, the equity position out of those properties and put them elsewhere for someone that's looking to enter into multifamily space or even, you know, doing multiple single family uh, properties. What do you consider or recommend for them to do at this moment, at this juncture? So there's two parts of that question. One is if you're managing a portfolio today, and the other one is, is if you're getting into the space. Right. So I'll do the getting into the space first. Okay. Um, I think if you're coming into the space, number one is you need to understand the context of the space, right? It's tempting to come in, especially if you're an A student, if you're a doctor, an attorney, an engineer, an architect, somebody that's always been the go-to know-it-all. You have mm -hmm. to resign from being the go-to know-it-all. Your job is no longer to know all the answers. Your job today is to know all the questions. And when you know all the questions and surround yourself with a team of technical advisors who are the A students, you have a much better chance of being successful. So there's two teams you're going to build. One is going to be your team, your local team, the people who are around you, your CPA, your uh, state, uh, an asset protection attorney, um, your insurance people, at least partly, some of the insurance is going to be you know, where, wherever the property is. Mm -hmm. uh, but you want to have that advisory team. Um, and then and then the other part is you're going to build a team in each of the markets you're in. So the first thing to do is figure out your personal investment philosophy. 
uh, who you are, what you're trying to accomplish, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, what interests you, what will hold your attention, an honest assessment of what your strengths and weaknesses are, because you, you have to be a total package, but you personally don't have to be the total package. You have to build a team that's a total package, and you're a part of the team. In addition to being the leader, you may have a role to play, and you have to leverage your current strengths to get yourself in a position to acquire things that are going to, you know, deal with your, your weakness. And you, you believe me, if you're only doing it for the money, if you're two-stepping where you think, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make the money. And then someday I'll live the life I want to live. You're never going to make the money. The only way to really stick with it and follow through good times and bad is to pick a, a investing lifestyle that you absolutely love. You know, if you, if you like the numbers, then be on the number side of the business like me. If you like the deal side of the business like Robert uh, does, then be on the deal side of the business. If you like building things, do that. If you like fixing things, do that. If you like managing things, do that, right? If you like going to certain parts of the world, see if you can find decent investment opportunities where you already want to go. That's how we ended up in Belize. Robert likes to go in, you know, to tropical environments. Great. Mm -hmm. Let's right. figure out if there's an opportunity there. So that's number one, personal investment philosophy. Number two is markets. And markets are not just geographic markets, but it's also demographic markets. You've got, you know, two of the biggest are the boomers and the millennials. They have very different needs when it comes to real estate, but they're both big demographics. Yes, there's other yes. demographics too, student housing, special needs, um, uh, agriculture, farmers. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different niches uh, mm -hmm. that you can get involved in. Um, so, so their markets are geographic, they're demographic, and they're also product niches. Uh, I'm a big fan right now of residential. I think in, in an environment like this, the more real and essential you get. And there's, to me, there's, there's residential. People are always going to need a roof over their head, even if they don't go to the ball, even if they don't go to an office, right? Um, there, I think the other one is going to be uh, healthcare. You know, there's going to be hospitals, there's going to be doctor's offices, there's going to, that type of uh, real estate is probably going to be more resilient than other types of real estate. I think um, energy markets, even though energy has been a little bit depressed and you have to tread lightly, if you can mm -hmm. find a deal in a depressed market, uh, I think the probability of energy bouncing back is high because the world needs energy. Needs it. It's not going to stop needing energy. There's no viable alternative in spite of all the calls for it. There's no viable alternative to oil right now. Uh, and a lot of oil production is coming offline because of the, the meltdown. We had a big glut of oil, which drove prices down and it, it, the rig count has gone down. So mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't go into a town whose only game was oil when the Bakken broke. Robert and I didn't go there because it was a one trick pony, um, okay. you know, and we're glad that's, we didn't. Uh, North Dakota, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. A lot of yep. people are like, oh, we're going to the Bakken, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, eh, I don't know. I'm not seeing it. Nobody wanted to live in North Dakota before oil was there. And if anything happens <laughs> right. to oil, they're not going to stay. All right. Uh, pretty sure that I don't want to be there. That turned out to be a good call. The same thing happened way back after, you know, with Katrina and the go zone, you had all this temporary tax opportunity, but it was short lived. You got this 50% mm -hmm. bonus, you know, uh, deduction uh, the first year, which is great for the first year. But what about the rest of the years, exactly. at least with the opportunity zone thing, they had the good sense to make it a 10 year program. Um, so anyway, so energy, let's see, what did I say? Healthcare, energy, uh, agriculture. 
I mean, and it's hard to do agriculture in the U.S. because of regulation and high cost of labor and taxes and just all that stuff. But offshore agriculture, I think, is a pretty good play, too, because uh, the thing about agriculture is it doesn't matter where the prosperity is. If China, India, they're the ones that rise and they become the dominant, those are the two largest population bases on Earth. That's a lot of hungry mouths. Yeah. Yeah. So if you own agriculture and can ship it there, you can still make money. I'm not probably going to own rental property in, in China or India. Mm-hmm. But I can still make money off those markets by, by, by investing in land that produces something they want to buy, which would be energy or, or food. So, um, you know, be strategic that way and, and think a little bit outside the box. Um, so those are markets. And then so, so you start with philosophy, markets, and then whatever market you choose to get into, build a team before you get into a deal. Use your okay. team, your local market, you know, pick experts in that niche, people who live eat, drink, breathe, know those markets cold. So that would, that would primarily be like your property managers, your brokers, things like that. That's niche specific and location. Yeah. If you're doing rental property, like residential rentals, to me, start with the property manager. I mean, because you have a better alignment of interest. I think everybody knows with all due respect to real estate brokers, you know, they're, they're pitching sunshine and unicorns Mm -hmm. because they're going to get a fat commission on the transaction and then they're going to move on down the road and you're left there holding the bag. But a property manager that you're going to hire to run that property, they make their money the same way you do off the income on the property. And they're in it for the long haul, the same way you are. And they're going to have a relationship with that property and those tenants, just like you are. And so if you pick a market and a great property manager, and then you sit down with that property manager and say, hey, Mr. Property Manager, uh, if I were to put a property in your portfolio that would make you look like Superman, where would it be? Where? What would that look like? Yep. And then he tells you, then you go look for that property and put it in his portfolio because it's just a widget to me. I don't care. I am yeah. much more interested in accumulating the debt and the cash flow. I could care less about the property. Property means nothing to me. You know, I want the debt because it makes me short the dollar and I want the cash flow to service the debt so that I can maintain uh, that cash flow, uh, that debt comfortably. Uh, and of course, I'd be locking it in long term at today's rates. Right. I wouldn't worry, even though I think there's a lot of pressure to put rates down, it's hard to believe they're going to go too much lower. And if for whatever reason the Fed loses control, and I think there's a reason on the horizon that they might, then interest rates will fly to the moon. Because the, the, if the Fed loses control, it's because they've lost the dollar. Yeah. And if they lose the dollar, then anybody lending in dollars is going to want a high compensation for the inflation. You know, they're going to be getting paid back with dollars that aren't worth as much. And so if inflation is 5%, you're not going to be getting 3% mortgages. Right. You know, you're so, going to be so looking at 8 or 9% mortgages. So it's best right now, if you have the capital and you want to get into real estate, right now is the best time to buy due to the low interest rates and you see the inflation on the horizon. Well, if the deal makes sense, right? right? I mean, you know, don't let the financing uh, tail wag the investment dog, pick the market, pick the team, and then make sure that the deal makes sense. Uh, don't count on rent escalation. In fact, probably budget in rent yeah, decreases. decreases. I mean, you need to be prepared for that. Uh, the lenders are already tightening. Lenders are already, you know, mm-hmm. lower LTVs, higher cash reserves, higher DSCRs. Um, they're, they're asking more from the, the borrowers. Oh. And that's because they, they see, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Chase all just increased their loss reserves to the highest level since 2008. 
Well, they're on the front line. They see everything. Two years ago, central banks all across the world bought record amounts of gold, more gold than they ever bought since uh, the early 70s when Nixon defaulted on the gold standard and the dollar crashed. Well, and when you think about currencies, who are the ultimate insiders? The ultimate insiders the are the central banks because mm -hmm. they print the currency. And if they are stocking up on gold two years ago, that's a mega clue. Yeah. And of course, people who are late to the party are figuring that out and gold prices reflecting weakness and lack of faith in the dollar. And worse, silver is confirming it. I just published a newsletter on that, uh, I believe this morning or last I, night. I, yesterday I did. I saw that uh, yeah. silver article. So that, I mean, because silver is both a, a, a industrial metal and a monetary metal, and lately it's been performing, or for a long time, it's been performing as an industrial metal. And people say, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with real estate? There, there are indicators like gauges of the strength of currency. If you're borrowing dollars, if you're earning dollars, if you're denominating your net worth in dollars and you don't understand the dollar, well, then you're vulnerable if something happens to the dollar. And right now there are gobs of clues in the news telling you the dollar has been under attack for, I mean, I've been tracking it for 10 years and Peter Schiff has been warning about it for as long as I've known him. And, you know, the point is we're, I think, could be approaching an end game, not the end of the world, but the uh -huh. end of the world as we know it because it's going to be a new world and that new world will be different and there's going to be winners and losers. The people who are prepared for the new world are going to win. The people who aren't are going to lose. And there's no reason in today's day and age not to be prepared because we have ready access to information, yeah. shows like yours, like mm -hmm. what we're doing right now. I mean, I, I learn everything just by listening to other people, reading books, watching YouTube videos, going to conferences, everything that I know and have learned except for my personal experiences. Uh, are readily available. And I share my personal experiences as most people who have experiences and are teachers do. Uh, so we can learn from each other's experiences, which is all reading a book is. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, Chris, uh, Russ, I'm sorry. With the government kind of manipulating the economy, how should we as the people, how should we structure ourselves to try and make it through this? Well, I think first of all, it's just to understand what's happening. I call this a four-phase cascading financial crisis. So, you know, act one is the health crisis. Uh, nobody saw it coming. Uh, Chris Martinson warned us of it in January. He saw it early because, you know, watching for mm -hmm. pandemics was one of his indicators. He was, he's, he's been on bubble watch. He knows we're in a bubble, been in a bubble, bigger bubble than 2008. And so he's like, what are all the different things that could prick it? And pandemic was on his list, not on my list, yeah. but fortunately I'm friends with Chris. So as soon as he saw it, he called me and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to pay attention to that. So the health crisis led to the lockdown and you have to set aside your political views. You know, whether you agree that it's a legit crisis, maybe an existential crisis mm -hmm. in terms of human health, or whether you think the whole thing is contrived and it's just cover to, you know, make an excuse for a failing financial system so they can print and spend trillions of dollars without too much pushback or somewhere in between. It doesn't matter what you think mm -hmm. because nobody's probably calling you and asking you. Right, right, the exactly. people who have their hands on the levers aren't calling me and saying, Russ, what do you think? It doesn't matter. What matters is what they think and what they do. And what they did was they shut down the economy. They gave us an economic heart attack. They stopped commerce, revenue and paychecks stopped. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a problem. Now you, you can stop, you can hold your breath for a little while. You can stop your heart for a little while, 
And if you start it up fast enough, you can recover. If it goes on too long, you start to have permanent damage. damage. I think we're already at the point where there's permanent damage. Individual cells, people are bankrupt. Uh, individual organs, businesses are bankrupt. Uh, certain things are never going to grow back. They're dead forever. Certain human behaviors have changed. So it's like having a stroke. You know, once mm -hmm. you've had a stroke, you're still alive and you're still functional, but you're not the same. And right. so there's some things that are just not going to be the same. And so we have to be aware of that as investors. So what are uh, some of those things that you think are not going to be the same? I know personally, the commercial market, I know is not going to recover and not be going to be the same because a lot of businesses and business owners see how they can be more efficient having their employees work from home. Yeah, office and retail, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, retail was already having trouble before right. this happened. But people who, who would have never bought online started buying online. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And they're going to keep doing it. So that's a, that's a permanent change. That's good for distribution. It's bad for retail. Uh, office, there's people that have discovered uh, businesses that would never consider uh, running remote teams that have had to master uh, do, do that. And now they're like, okay, well, now that I got over the resistance, figuring out how to do it, uh, the easiest thing to do is cancel my office lease, default on my office lease or not renew my office lease. And then the people are like, hey, uh, you know, the business is struggling. I mean, if I'm a businessman and I'm running myself in New York or San Francisco or Chicago or something like that with high rent, high wages, and uh, I realize, hey, I got to lay people off. I don't really have to lay people off. What I have to do is I have to reduce, reduce payroll. And I go to my team and I say, hey, how many of you would be willing to move to a lower cost area where you could have a better standard of living for less pay? So if I cut your pay, but you had a better standard of living and I let you work remotely from Orlando or mm -hmm. someplace else where you didn't have to pay income tax or housing is less expensive, how many of you would be down for that? And if I get some volunteers, all of a sudden it's like, wow, I can improve my bottom line. Yeah. So I think, I think you're going to see some of that. Uh, so, you know, there's, it, and, and who knows, you know, I mean, I think one of the other things that's potential that I've got my eye on is manufacturing. I think, you know, President Trump was saying, hey, we got to bring manufacturing back. We got to bring manufacturing back. And there were people who believed that those jobs were gone and gone forever. And we're never going to come back. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, but part of the problem was the unwillingness of the American people to pay better wages through the cost of what they were doing. Right. And so, but you know, now of course it's well publicized, whether it's true or not, or just propaganda, but a lot of those cheap prices come at the, at the expense of slave labor. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be some pushback on that. Certainly the, the lack of medicines and medical equipment in a, in a pandemic has shown people it's foolish to be dependent upon third world or third world outside countries. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, I shouldn't say third world, but, uh, but, but outside manufacturing. Outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, for critical needs. So if that manufacturing comes back, and I think there's going to be uh, bipartisan support for that, and in fact, in, in spite of the partisanship, uh, then I think that there's some markets out there that are really inexpensive, that are well positioned, that have, you know, either labor forces or could build labor forces that have good distribution or well-located business-friendly states, maybe Tennessee, um, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, Arkansas, Alabama, places like that. Uh, that could end up seeing a surge and maybe even some of these rust belt states would see a resurgence, you know, that have been really decimated mm -hmm. if the politicians can get out of their own way and yeah, make, a, yeah. make a business friendly environment. So I'm watching that. That could be a change that would come. So there's, you know, the, even though this is a lot of change and there's going to be a lot of turmoil and there's going to be a lot of trauma. 
there's also going to be a lot of opportunity. But you cannot play this game the way you played it before. Uh, obviously, I'd be locking in long-term financing, and I would get all you can get. Well, you can get it because it's going to go away. If you don't have credit, then go find a credit partner who does. Right. If you don't have cash, go find a cash partner who does. If all you do is bring the hustle and put the parties together and go find the deals and bring that to the party, mm -hmm. right? I'm a big, I think the opportunity to syndicate is better than it's ever, ever been because uh, Wall Street is going to be chaotic, uh, but it's pumped full of money. People who have ridden that gravy train and are realizing, hey, maybe I, it's time to get off. Get off. Yeah. Um, they're not necessarily going to want to learn how to go look at properties and write offers and manage property managers or, God forbid, manage tenants. Uh, they're going to need shoppers. They're going to need people who, who go shop for them. Just like, you you know, a lot of people like I do, I, I have shoppers who shop for me. I don't go to grocery stores. Mm -hmm. I just order and they bring it to me. Right. So uh, a syndicator's job is to be a shopper for the affluent. Jim Rohn says, if you want to become wealthy, become valuable to valuable people. True. It's never been a better time for someone to do that. So if I'm on the front end trying to build my fortune, I'm going to say, well, how can I get in a room full or in an environment of valuable people and become valuable to them? What is it they need? Don't look at life from your need. This is what I need. Nobody cares what you need. Right. Go find out what a wealthy person needs and give that to them. And then you'll make your fortune. Okay. Now, um, with the upcoming proposed stimulus that that we need to um, try and find out what what the government is going to do with that, in the event that things do not get that we do not get the stimulus come July thirty first, I know they were talking about it this morning that we were supposed to know something yesterday and then possibly tomorrow. What what do you think will happen? You know, if another round of stimulus did not happen for the American public, well, all roads lead home doesn't really matter what happens in terms of what's really going to happen. What's really going to happen is the Fed has to print. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if, if, if the money goes through the stimulus uh, to try to, you know, uh, allow the Fed basically to make the debt payments to prevent the debt from going back, because that's basically what's happening. It's like, Hey, we're going to give you loans. We're going to, so you can make payroll. So your, uh, your um, employees well, can afford to pay, pay their right. debts. Yep. Um, so you can afford to pay your debts. Uh, because if you don't pay your debts, then those bonds go bad and the whole financial system implodes. So, you know, Act 1 is health crisis. Act 2 is economic crisis. Payments stop. Act 3 is financial system crisis where credit markets and banks fail. That's what happened in 2008. And in order to save that, the Fed printed gobs of money and, and ate, uh, like you can imagine, you know, the Hulk eating a, a nuclear bomb, right? They, they mm -hmm. just went out and they, 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 they blew up their balance sheet from 800 billion to four and a half trillion. And they literally purchased the toxic assets, all the bad debt and swallowed it onto their balance sheet. And that's where it is. And, you know, if the implosions were occurring, they were insulated from the marketplace and the Fed just absorbed it. Well, the Fed really doesn't have anything except the ability to print money. And so when they print money, every dollar they print without any corresponding increase in production, right now we have a decrease in uh, production is basically a dilution. It's, it's no different than if you went and bought shares. I'm just going to use simple round numbers, but let's mm -hmm. say uh, that Apple, you know, was worth a million dollars. I know it's worth a lot more than that, but let's say it was worth a million dollars. And let's say they issued a million shares. And so based on that, each share is worth a dollar. Dollar. Right. If, if, and now all of a sudden, if without increasing sales or doing anything, they just printed uh, 9 million more shares and now they have 10 million shares, then each one of your shares is worth 10 cents. You were diluted by 90%. Well, that's what happens when they print money. 
So you might have more dollars, but they're not worth as much. Oh, I got right. 10 shares now. Yeah, but it's still only worth a dollar. It's worth the yeah. same as it was before. So it takes 10 times as many shares, you know, to, to equal the same percentage of the company. And that's just inflation. That's inflation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is certain to occur. It's just, it's just how much of it can they contain? Now, the advantage the United States have, and I wrote about this in this last newsletter, is because we have the dollar's reserve currency status, dollars are in demand all around the world. The Triffin Dilemma, you can look it up, Triffin, T-R-I-F-F-I-N, Triffin Dilemma, is that whoever issues the world's reserve currency must run a trade deficit so the rest of the world can have access to the currency. Because the way you get the currency around the world is by trading at a deficit. Right. Okay? So people want dollars. And so we print dollars and the rest of the world sucks them up. Well, that's great. And that suppresses inflation in America. That's why you, if you've mm -hmm. ever heard the term, oh, you know, the U.S. exports inflation, that's what they're talking about. The problem is, is if for some reason the U.S. were to lose its world's reserve currency status, and there are calls from the greatest economic power on the planet, China and Russia, mm -hmm. uh, the second largest producer of energy and, uh, you know, on par with the United States in terms of military tech and the two of them together on par, uh, in many ways with the United States, they've been calling for 10 years for the de-dollarization of the world and putting all the pieces of infrastructure in place to do it. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to happen, and I'm not saying it's going to happen soon, but they've been working on it for 10 years. It's a formidable effort. They're formidable uh, foes, if you will. No surprise uh -huh. that we're at odds with them politically, but right. nobody talks about the weakness of the dollar. In fact, Mnuchin just came out yesterday and tried to assure everybody. Yeah, he did. Right? He did. Well, the, Bernanke came out in 2007 and tried to tell everybody subprime wasn't a problem because Same that's what thing. they do. You, the minute you start getting assurances from politicians that something's not a problem, it's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. And it's and a little so bit too late. If we lose that world's reserve currency status, then all of a sudden it's just like being delisted on the S&P. You know, if you're familiar with this, uh, the S&P yep. index, you know, if you get listed on the S&P, you know your stock price is going up because going every S&P index manager on the planet is going to buy your stock to mirror their fund to the index. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is true. If you get delisted from the S&P, every fund manager and their brother is going to sell your yeah. stock because they don't need it anymore. Well, that could happen to the U.S. dollar. If that happens, that is the game changer. So the four-step deal is health crisis to economic crisis to financial system crisis printing gobs of money to prevent the financial system from going down leads to a currency crisis and if the dollar goes into a currency crisis we go from being the united states of america the world's hegemonic economic power to being zimbabwe or venezuela and if you're not prepared for that if you're not prepared for that you could be in trouble so I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying there's enough evidence to suggest it could, and you probably want to have a plan for it. And that's where precious metals, precious metals. factor yeah. in. That's where uh, offshore real estate factors in. That's where extremely conservative structures, you know, factor in so that you can absorb uh, inflation, because inflation is going to hit your tenants, right? If, if, you're, if you're spending 10% of your income on your living expenses and your living expenses double, you're yeah. fine. Now you're only spending 20%, even if they triple. Mm -hmm. But if you're spending 95, 98, 100% of your money just surviving just paycheck surviving. to paycheck, 
and your living expenses go up 20%, not even double, you're in trouble. Yeah. And those are your tenants in residential. And so you have to be. And that's the majority of America because everyone is living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And so again, you, you know, you, you need to be very, very cognizant, keep your thumb on the pulse of what's going on in your markets and watch for trends. And when you start to see a trend uh, that is not good, don't hesitate, make your move. So right now, you know, if you've got a portfolio, I'm looking at the portfolio going, okay, anything that isn't in an eight, you know, a great market with a great team in great shape with a great tenant base, I'm probably going to get rid of everything that is in a great market with a great team and a great tenant base. And, you know, I'm going to structure the financing for the long term, mm -hmm. and I may be going to make some strategic investments uh, to, to optimize the appealability of that particular uh, property compared mm -hmm. to the other people in the market so that I have my unfair share of demand. And I'm going to take care of that thing uh, very, very carefully. If I've got available equity, I'm going to strip it all out. Okay. Um, you know, one of my favorite strategies right now is you, you lock in long-term financing, pull equity out of properties, lock it in, take, take half the proceeds, invest half the proceeds in, in notes preferably first trustees on properties you'd be happy to own with lots of protective equity. So if you get a 20, 30, 40% pullback in price, you're still even. Gotcha. Uh, so if I can borrow 200,000 at, at, at 4% and I can invest 100,000 at 8%, I break even on the cash flow. I've straddled the dollar, I'm long and short. And then mm -hmm. I take the other 100,000 and maybe I throw $100,000 of gold in my safe, right? Yep. It has, and I wait. And I just wait. And if we get the big crash and the dollar goes to crap, uh, then that gold could go from two to 10,000. Yep. And now I can take a portion of the gold, retire the debt, own the real estate free and clear, still mm -hmm. have some gold left over and I'm insulated. So it's a way to short the dollar in a falling dollar environment. In fact, I'm gonna be putting together a tutorial on this. I taught this at our Future Money and Wealth Conference two years ago. The people who did it, they're so happy. Yeah, they're happy, I bet. <laughs> they're so happy. Uh, and, but it takes a while to get your mind around it. So if anyone's interested in being invited to that webinar, I'll probably get it done here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you can send an email to preciousequity at realestateguysradio.com. And I'll make sure I have that in the show notes. Um, Russell, we're going to take a quick break. We'll hear a word from our sponsors and then we'll come right back. And when we come back, I want to ask you a vital question of what is the difference between the economy and the financial markets and the financial Oh, that's a system. great question. All right. So let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. PropString is the industry's number one tool for locating distressed properties and connecting with highly motivated sellers with 100% coverage across the U.S. PropString provides a deep dive into any property-specific details, making it easy to generate lists of distressed properties and contact to the owners. No other product or service can compare. Gain access to MLS property details like expired listings. You can pull accurate comps, even sale prices in non-disclosure states. This information is typically reserved for licensed real estate professionals, but is also available to you in PropStream. Gain access to unlimited nationwide property search, comparable home sales, targeted marketing lists, and owner contact lookup, built-in marketing tools, hundreds of filters to search and sort leads. Start your free seven-day trial now by going to proud.propstreampro.com slash we love
Okay, Russell, thank you so much. So going back, um, I want to ask you, what is the difference between the economy and the financial system? So uh, I, I, the easiest way for me to explain it is like this. <clears throat> if, if you are going down the road to riches in your vehicle and you're looking at your speedometer and you're going 75 miles an hour and you're looking at your odometer and you can see the miles ticking by and you know you're making good progress, you feel like you're crushing it. Like, hey, I am mm -hmm. on my way to, uh, on the road to riches and I can see the pot of the gold at, at the end. Uh, but if you're not watching your, your engine gauges, if you're not paying attention to your oil pressure, your engine temperature, you might not realize that even though it seems like you're chugging down the road at a good clip and you're well on pace to get where you want to go, that the machinery that's getting you there is weak and possibly mm -hmm. about ready to fail. So that the financial system is the machinery that the economy operates on. And it includes the currency, which is mm -hmm. the, uh, like the, I'm going to switch metaphors now, uh, but it's like the, uh, or is that an analogy? I always get them confused. Uh, but it's like, it's like the blood in a human body, right? It needs to circulate. That's why they call it currency. It's like electrical yep. current. It needs to flow. Mm -hmm. And as it flows through the, uh, through society, it nourishes everything it touches, right? You can pay your bills because money is flowing through your hands, comes in, comes out, right? You get it, you pay your bills, somebody else gets it, they pay their bills and it just keeps going around and around and around, right? That's currency. That's right. the way an economy works. That's why I say we have an economic heart attack when you lock down, blood stops flowing, right? So mm -hmm. currency is a big part of it uh, because all of the entire system is debt, all of it, right? If you look at that dollar bill in your pocket, it says Federal Reserve note. Anybody that knows what a promissory note is mean notes and IOU. Yep. So ostensibly the Fed owes you something, but nobody knows what it is. It used to be uh, up until 1965, it used to be that a dollar bill was worth a dollar of silver, mm -hmm. 21.4 grains of silver or grams of silver. That's not true anymore. So it's not, it's, it's what they call irredeemable. So everything is debt, everything. And so uh, in order to get ahead, in order to compete, if you want to buy a car, if you want to buy a house, if you want to go to college, you, you have to get a loan, get right? Everything is mm -hmm. debt. Everything is, is about taking that currency, that cash flow and pledging it to the lenders. So the borrower is servant to the lender. It's modern day slavery. Most yep. people don't understand that, yep. but that's the system we're in. It's a game you got to play. The reason real estate works is because when you understand that we are in a debt driven financial system, then you have to learn how to make money with debt. You, you, you can't get rich trying to get out of debt because everybody using debt will completely blow you away. And then the Fed trying to monetize the debt will dilute your savings to where it's worth nothing. Right. So the only way to play the game is debt. And the best way to play the get rich with debt game is real estate. There's no other vehicle that's better. And when you marry that to gold, then you supercharge it. But mm -hmm. that, that's a different discussion. So the, the financial system is the credit markets, primarily the bond markets and the banking system because the banking system is all predicated on debt. So you loan your money to the bank when you make a deposit and they take your savings, which is now uh, their liability mm -hmm. because it's your, it's your asset. Your asset. They owe you, yep. it's their liability and they need to create an offsetting asset, which is a loan, which is your liability, but their asset. And so, and they lever it up 
uh, because through the fractional reserve system, and now they don't even have to have any reserves. Part of the response <laughs> to the latest thing is, you know, you, you used to go, you used to have to have 10% reserves. Now you can have zero. zero. Well, you know, if you just divide, do the math, that's infinite leverage. There's no limit to the amount of leverage. But it also means that any pullback in asset values creates an insolvent banking system. So it is extremely fragile, far more fragile than it was in 2008. And the trigger is not just a few subprime mortgage uh, borrowers in the corner of the economic universe, but it's the entire global economy yeah. that can't make their payments, right? So the trigger is way, way bigger. And the amount of debt in the system is way, way bigger. To think that that is not going to implode the financial system is just ignorant. And yeah. if, if you say, well, yeah, but do the authorities feel that way? Obviously, because as soon as this thing broke, Powell did not wait for the next scheduled uh, FOMC meeting. He just came right out and said, we're yeah. dropping interest rates, not 25, but 50 basis points. We're going straight to straight zero to the, right yeah. away. We're going to print tons of money. Congress is going to pass a bill. We don't have time for it to trickle down. We're going to mainline it right into people's checking accounts. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and we're going to $350 billion or whatever it is in PPP loans. And in a week, it's gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, quickly. So fast. So fast. So their reaction tells you they're scared to mm -hmm. death. Right. I mean, you can see it. And, and it's, it's like they're not even like, yeah, we're going to print money as much money as we are. We're going to go in 60 minutes. We're going to print money and print money, print money, print money. And says so that assures everybody. Then when everybody starts getting freaked out about all the money printing out, they trudge Mnuchin. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, we're going to protect the dollar. <laughs> yeah. Well, how in the hell are you going to protect the protect dollar when you just printed print three, three, four trillion dollars in four months? Yeah. See, but people, are, people don't have a financial education. I didn't. Mm -hmm. It's taken me 10 years to get my mind around this, but these are the things that people have to understand. There's a big difference. So when you start seeing the stock market as the leading indicator for the health of the economy, it is a manipulated gauge designed to distract you from what's really going on. And I personally, I like Donald Trump. He's a real estate guy. I, I've always felt like it would be good to get a, somebody that thought like mm -hmm. a real estate guy in the White House. You know, you may not like his style or his demeanor uh, or some of his policies, but I think uh, from a pragmatic perspective, he's just a guy that looks like the way a real estate developer does. He looks at all the components of cost and is trying to improve the bottom line, mm -hmm. you know? So let's, let's have cheap energy. Let's have cheap money. Let's find a way to um, direct more of the excess to labor and let's increase wages. And then that'll boost the economy and make America more secure. Okay. Well, I, I happen to agree with all that from a so, policy perspective, so um, let me, but let it me, doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter because the fact is every time he points at the stock market as his claim to fame, all he's doing is just distracting people distracting from people. protecting themselves and he suckers them into wall street, which I think is really, really a dangerous mm -hmm. place to be. I mean, can you make money dollars? Sure. But, you know, the, the stock market giveth and the stock market cometh Take away. Right now, mm -hmm. I think the emphasis needs to not be on quick wealth, uh, you know, buy low, sell high, you know, capital gains. It needs to be on resilient wealth, which mm -hmm. is cash flow and being short the dollar with debt and gold. So that was, you, you may mention to, you know, not to watch the stock market. What should we be watching specifically since we shouldn't be watching the ebbs and flows of the stock market. So what, what exactly should we take our emphasis off of watching the stock market? Because we know that that's manipulated. What should be, what should we then be looking at Russ so we can get a firm gauge on how the economy really is doing? 
Well, it's all uh, it's all manipulated, and it really, candidly, doesn't matter how the macro economy is going because real estate is a micro investment. So I pay attention to the bond markets because the most uh, salient component of the macro economy to a, a Main Street real estate investor is the health of the credit markets and the cost of credit. And that happens at the macro level. So I watch that. And gotcha. right part and parcel of that is the dollar. So if I'm watching the dollar and the credit markets, then I'm aware of when credit collapse is perhaps imminent or interest rate changes are perhaps coming. And I can structure myself and my finances to absorb that because it will have a ripple effect throughout the entire economy. But when I really concentrate on the health of an economy, what I'm focused on is the local economy okay. because that's what matters. You know, you, you can go into, uh, it's like, just talk real estate right now. If you were talking to somebody about New York real estate right now, they tell you it's an absolute train wreck. But if you go talk to, uh, I just got off the phone with our gal in Memphis yesterday and they're booming, mm -hmm. right? So from their perspective, everything's great. New York, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And that's right. the way real estate is. So just pay attention to your local economy, you know, get on your chamber of commerce, read your local business journal, pay close attention to your property managers uh, and make sure you understand how your tenant base is doing. Are they paying out of unemployment checks or are they paying out of paychecks? Uh, who are they working for? How are those companies doing? For example, I mentioned Memphis. Everybody I think that knows the Memphis market knows that the story is FedEx. Mm -hmm. So I, I subscribe to the, um, the uh, a news alert that feeds me the, the financial reports for FedEx because as FedEx goes, so goes, so goes Memphis. Memphis. Yeah. And so, you know, they put stuff out in the, the news and some of it, but if you really want to pay close attention, you need to uh, even better buy a few shares so that you get prospectuses and, and all of that and access to earning calls and all that. If you really care, if there's a major mega driver, uh, if you're in an oil industry, uh, an oil town, you know, then I would definitely be paying attention to what's going on in oil because that's going to affect your local employment. And even if you're, even if your tenants aren't employed directly, you know, there's primary jobs, which are jobs that, uh, that work in industries that are, that are bringing money in from outside mm -hmm. that make that economy viable and vibrant and competitive. And you, they're attracting outside wealth. Those are the most important jobs because they produce the secondary jobs, right. which are all the support functions. So if I'm Boeing, I'm selling planes all over, but I am uh, buying parts, you know, welding services or whatever from local, right. Right. they're secondary. They only exist because of the primary, but they create good jobs. But they may, those people may be homeowners and not renters, but they're going to the laundromat, the cleaner, the auto mechanic, you know, those are the tertiary right. jobs. It only exists because of the primary and secondary. So when you look at it, your local economy, you know, you want to look at, you want to look at the primary first and then do the trickle through and then just be aware, like the example that I gave with Boeing, of course, Boeing's in trouble right now, but if yeah. you were to, to go to the second level, how many of those services that they're getting locally could be outsourced? Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, again, I agree with the policy of bringing industrialization back to the United States. We've become over-financialized. You can't become wealthy pushing paper around. Paper, yeah. I mean, if that could happen, then you and I could just, you know, 
a pass paper back and forth between each other, marking it up every mm -hmm. round trip and say that we're each making a profit, but we haven't produced a thing. Producing. If somebody who's not doing real work, isn't growing real food or producing real energy or making real clothes, you and I have nothing to eat, drink, you know, or to power mm -hmm. our lifestyle, right? So too much financialization makes, makes a country weak, even though it can be rich in currency like the United States is, we're weak in manufacturing. Right. I mean, we're not weak compared to a lot of countries, but we're definite. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I order a bunch of stuff on Amazon and I'd say probably 90% of every box I open has got a big sticker on it that says made in China. China. So yeah. all that stimulus money that got pumped into everybody's checking account in the United States went directly to China. China, <laughs> absolutely. Through so Walmart you, you, and Amazon. Yep, you have to be producers at some time. You can't be consumers all the time. So Yeah, and that's what the economy needs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the economy is what supports the financial system or should, not vice versa. We've, we've flipped it over. Right. So, Russ, we're going to start wrapping up here. Uh, a wealth of information, man. You, you're just like an open book. You're an encyclopedia. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours because I'm I'm kind of geeky and nerdy like that to where I love talking about the economy. Well, come on the summit next things. year. That's what we do. We all get together for about a week and you can have these conversations. Kiyosaki's in, Kenny McElroy's in. We're all going to be hanging out at the beach and uh, and, and, and in the bars and, you know, at the, at the beach club and stuff, talk and shop. It's, and you do it for nine days. It's epic. Yeah. Jay Massey was the one that told me about it, you know, outside of, you know, listening to the show, he was like, man, you, you really need to go and experience it because it's some high level thinkers there. And it, well, that's where he met Kiyosaki. It changed his whole life. I mean, yep. he met him and then a week later he's on stage with him in San Jose. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Russell, we're going to go into our hot seat. I'm going to put you on a hot seat. I got a few questions I want you to answer for us. So we are going to put Russell on the hot seat, the hot seat. Okay, Russ, starting out back in 2008 or before, what would you do different than what you did? Um, for sure. I would have practiced the discipline of SWOT analysis. Uh, and I think even prior to that, I would have made sure that I was never, ever the smartest guy in the room. The minute I elevated myself to smartest guy in the room, I'd go looking for a new room. Okay. Uh, and I would have, and the other thing is, is I was in an echo chamber. That was a big lesson that we fixed afterwards is we were only listening to real estate people talk about real estate. We got out of the echo chamber and really be focused. You can't do a good SWOT analysis if you don't have a 360. You have yeah. to see the whole lay of the land. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is your greatest commodity outside of capital? My library. Gotcha. Okay. My library and my network. There you go. So going back to your library, what is a good book that you can recommend besides Equity Happens? We know. That well, you can't even get Equity Happens. <laughs> we, we quit printing it. I mean, if, if you go on Amazon, the used copies, I've seen it as high as $750. It's, it's ridiculous. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. So we should reprint it, but none of that money goes to us. We're, it's not like we're selling it for that, but that's what it goes for in the secondary markets. It's insane. Okay. Um, so, uh, I'm, well, I'm trying, you know, the obvious, the go-to books, the, the life-changing books for a lot of people have been Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I was already there mm. by the time I read it, but still a fantastic book. The book that changed my life was Creature from Jekyll Island by Ed Griffin, by Ed uh, because Griffin. it explained the Federal Reserve System and how our, you know, the, the Federal Reserve, the IRS, and the income tax were all born in the 16th Amendment. And that changed the whole system and turned over the entire society to the banks. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have the mess we have right now. And people don't understand that. So that's a, that's a big one. 
Um, I think other business classic books that are really helpful, Jim Collins, Good to Great, one of the best ever. Gary Keller's The One Thing in terms of personal productivity and leveraging your time and focus. Uh, That's maybe one of the best books ever written. Um, Michael Gerber's The E-Myth in terms of just understanding how to create processes and systems and the difference between getting on a treadmill and just doing the work or being a strategic thinker and really how to become a CEO, uh, whether it's over your portfolio, uh, which really should involve a team running your business like a bit or your portfolio, like a business. Uh, I could go on and on, but that's a handful. Okay. All right. So Russell, give us some insight on what you guys have coming up. Um, You and Robert Helms, Kind of give us some insight on the Real Estate Guys radio show for those who may not know of any know of it, and what kind of promotions? What do you guys have have coming up that we can learn? You know, from you. Well, you know, we got free stuff. Uh, we're just getting ready to launch our uh, new and improved website. We're finally making it into the 21st century with a mobile-friendly <laughs> platform. So I'm, I'm proud of that. And the only reason it's happening is because I had nothing to do with it. And we turned it over to a project manager. She crushed it. So that's uh-huh. coming out. So we're excited about that. But um, so we have, uh, we have a special report library there where you can download all kinds of special reports totally for free on all kinds of different topics. We obviously have our weekly podcast. You can listen to it on our website or any of the great podcast uh, outlets. Uh, you know, realestateguysradio.com. You can learn about that. Publish a weekly newsletter. Try to get it out every Wednesday. This week, there was so much going on with silver. I just wanted to wait a day Mm -hmm. and I put it out um, on Thursday. Uh, So we do that. That's all free. Um, We're also doing something for free that is kind of unusual. There's a couple things that I just felt were so timely that we had to do. Um, When the crisis broke, we, we called up all of our big brain friends and we said, hey, let's talk about this. Let's record it and let's make it a webinar. Well, it turned out to be this marathon of 13 episodes. And so we created a a webinar series we call the COVID-19 Crisis Investing Webinar Series. We're about ready to introduce it totally for free. You can get information about that by sending an email to crisis at realestateguysradio.com. And uh, Peter Schiff, Robert Kiyosaki, Kenny McElroy, Daniel DiMartino Booth, who used to work at the Dallas Fed, Nomi Prince, who used to work on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Chase, uh, trying to think who else we, oh, Richard Duncan, uh, economist to the IMF, just a lot of really, really smart people. Uh, To get a 360, Chris Martinson and Adam Taggart, who, you know, really been tracking this virus and and, and all of that. Uh, Art Berman, we talked about what's going on in oil, which is a major indicator, but also a driver of economic activity. So that's all for free. Uh, So we're going to be doing that. And then the other thing I just finished was a nine-part series on silver. I knew silver was going to take off uh, about three weeks ago. And so I called up my buddy, Dana Samuelson, uh, who's a gold dealer. And he's been in the business forever. He's just a salt of the earth, nicest man ever. And so we said, well, let's just create, you know, a series of videos and just kind of explain people who know nothing about silver. So we call it Making Sense of Silver, everything that you've always wanted to know about silver and didn't know to ask. Uh, it's a nine-part series, so we're just putting the finishing touches on that. You can get information on that at Silver Series at realestateguysradio.com. So all that's for free. And, of course, we have our events. The big thing is if you want to learn how to syndicate, you want to learn how to raise money, you got to pay to get, learn this. But we have an online course that we also combine with a two-day live conference when we're allowed to do that. Yep. Uh, and then that leads into our mentoring program for people that are serious and kind of want to be in an environment, a community of people teaching people with some mentors along who've kind of been there, done that. And we have an online platform, online community. Uh, so, you know, syndication at realestateguysradio.com to learn about that. 
And, uh, and then, of course, we do our annual investor summit, which is uh, coming up in June of 2021. We just finished it this year. It was online. It was great. Very successful. Lots of great mm -hmm. folks. But, uh, but we're going to be doing it in Belize next year uh, at our resort property there. And um, we've got, I think, I, I, I don't want to get ahead. I, I, I'm sure Peter, Peter's in every year. So we'll have Peter Schiff, Kenny McElroy. Uh, we're going to have, you know, obviously Robert and I, just a bunch of people. It's always great. So that, that should be up on our website in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but if you're on our list, you're going to hear about it. So any one of those emails will put you on our list. And then you can always unsubscribe if you don't like what you're getting. But lots of free stuff. Uh, and a couple of things you need to pay for if you're serious, but, uh, but lots, of, lots of good times and we'll put you in an environment around a lot of really smart people and give you a chance. You'll get more done in terms of expanding your knowledge and your network in just a few days in one of our rooms uh, than most people get done in 10 years wandering around on their own. Gotcha, gotcha. So guys, I'll make sure I have all of that information in the show notes. Russell, I really appreciate it, man. It was some definitely some critical things that you gave us today that we we'll, we need to rehash, relook at and reevaluate our portfolios. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you again. If you ever need anything from me, feel free to reach out. And I just want to thank you again. So in parting words, any last thing you want to share with our listeners? Uh, I think just continue to invest in your education, listen to lots of podcasts in the space and outside the space. Uh, read a lot of books. Keep an open mind. Don't let your political proclivities get in the way of seeing the big picture. You stand on the edge of the coin, as Robert Kiyosaki says. See both sides of the issue. Uh, and, then, and then you have to react to what is, not what you want it to be, not how it should be. Uh, there's going to be a lot of emotion and a lot of polarization, especially in a political year. Got to put that aside and just look at what's really happening and not what you think, but what the people who are in charge are thinking. And you know what mm -hmm. they're thinking, not by what they're saying, because they're all liars, but yeah. by what they do. do. You watch what they do. If you're going to dance with an elephant, you watch its feet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Russell. Thank you so much. Much success to you and Robert and the Real Estate Guys radio show. And Thanks, Marcus. Great being with you. Likewise. Bye-bye. Woo, that's all I can say. That was some, some wonderful information. Guys, take time to listen to this episode over and over and over and over again. What we have a uh, tendency to do is go out there and try and make money without learning how money is made. So take some time, learn how money is produced, how you should use it, how you should structure it. And remember, money is just currency. It's used to be circulated and we have to look at it. It's not backed by anything. It's not backed by gold like it used to be. It's not on a gold standard. So make sure you hedge yourself, do some things. I have really learned quite a bit from Russell on today. And there's some changes that we're going to make in our portfolio and how we structure things just from this one conversation. So with that being said, get all of the information that's down in the show notes. I'll make sure that they're down there. Um, again, if you want more information from me, go to MarcusEMaloney.com or you can go to YouTube.com slash MRCS Maloney. Get all kinds of content. I wanted to bring something a little bit different on today, just outside of traditional investing, investing, investing. We need to know how 
money and currency works and the difference between the economy and a financial system. And Russell definitely explained that for us on today. So family, thank you. This was a very, very, very refreshing to hear. Make sure you get out there. Make sure you get some things going. And always remember to enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to today's show. I picked up some great actionable items and I'm sure you did as well. If so, let me know. You can always reach me via social media at facebook.com slash MRCS Maloney, Twitter at MRCS Maloney, and of course, IG at MRCS Maloney. You can also always reach me via email at mmaloney at equityri.com. Make sure you reach out to our guest as well. You can always find their contact information in the show notes below. If you have not subscribed already, what are you waiting for? Join the family. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. This is how we tell if we're providing you with what you need for your journey. If there's someone you would like for me to interview, or if there's a subject matter you would like for me to cover, please let me know. Finally, if you're looking for additional information about real estate investing, go to equityrealestateblog.com, also youtube.com slash Marcus Maloney. Until next time, family, always enjoy the journey.